I'm Dane. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. A weekly podcast that hasn't been weekly for about 18 months. <laughs> uh, we're back. Hi. We've got a couple of episodes to put out or to record or to do something with. And life has been so busy that we thought we would just put them out sporadically as and when we get a couple of minutes. Yeah. So this is the first one of the new series. Is it a series? I don't know. Because <laughs> I really don't know. Um, we are joined today by Merlin the Cat, who is looking for attention. We do not have in the room with us Pixie the Cat, who is the noisy one, but you will hear her later on, no doubt. Yeah. And we've got a new case. Did you want to go straight into it? Should we just say what's happened in the past two years? I don't think anything's happened to us. It hasn't happened to everybody else. Yeah, we've been locked down. We've had an extension done to the house. Oh, true, yes. We've had almost a year of building works, which is now finished. I've got a new job. You've got a new job. It's just it's just been life, basically. Life has got yeah. in the way. Um, loads of people have contacted us on Facebook via email. Thank you ever so much for reaching out. Apologies for not getting back to you or not mentioning you on the podcast. Um, I have tried to reply to people on Facebook and via email. So if you've done it and not had a reply, I apologise. My fault. Um, but do get in contact with us. We do like reading this stuff. Where are we? So this is the first time we've done this in about 18 months. So bear with us as we find our feet again. If you would like to leave us a review, you can do it at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. And we'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. Sounds so strange. Really it does. I'm out of touch now. I don't know how to do this anymore. I don't think we knew how to do it in the first place. But... To be fair, I think we did it wrong as well. I've got a cup of tea. Normally we have a glass of wine. Yeah, normally we have JD and Coco <laughs> wine on the go. I mean, it's only half past one in the afternoon on a Sunday. We could we could crack out the alcohol. Technically. <laughs> I'll need the alcohol for editing because that's the pain in the bum bit of this. Aww. Yeah, yeah. You can, oh, you don't do it. No, I don't. <laughs> This case was recommended by Jay Barnes on Facebook, and he recommended this, thank you Jay, back on the 7th of May, 2020. So, almost two years, one month ago. It is, yeah. Thanks, Jay. Cheers, Jay. Finally, we're getting around to it. Yes. Uh, this week, the case of the sexual oddity murderer. That's Ooh. a horrible title. It is a horrible title. Uh, I should say, I've written this in pieces over the past 18 months. I haven't looked at this script for at least six months, if not a year, so I've no idea what happens in it. Memory like this is. I haven't read it at all, so... It's going to be an exciting adventure for me, just like yep. for you. <laughs> and we're doing real basic editing or Nexolo editing, so you're going to get all the ums, ahs, and bits and pieces in between. Okay, shall we begin? Yes. Alice Rye was a 74-year-old widow who lived at 23 Poulton Road in Spittle, Merseyside. I say Merseyside, it's the Wirral, and like the Chantelle Taylor case that we covered in episode 6... Uh, it's local to the Sublime True Crime headquarters because we're on the Wirral. Yes. Alice had moved there in the early 1960s from her North Wales place of birth following her marriage to John and went on to have three children there, Davina, Rowena and Derek. It's a shame that Derek's name didn't rhyme. I was just thinking that. John sadly passed away in 1986, by which time the three Rye children had all grown up and left the property, which is understandable. Their son, Derek, had moved to South Africa, while their daughters, although still in the UK were hundreds of miles away in Hampshire and Surrey. Though Alice was said to be visited by her children and grandchildren several times a year, her social life was based in and around the home she loved. She also had an older sister who lived in Anglesey, which, although only on the North Wales coast, was 100 miles away in the opposite direction from her daughters. 
Alice couldn't bear to leave the property that she'd spent her adult life in and the one in which she'd watched her kids grow up. And thanks to John's generous pension, she was able to afford to stay in the property. Described by friends as a private woman who gave generously to charity, she had also played an active role in her local church, Holy Trinity, where her vicar described her as, quote, a popular lady, elegant, dignified, a woman of poise, end quote. Not only was she a regular attendee at Mass with a group of friends every Sunday, she also threw herself into voluntary work at the church to keep her busy, especially the Wednesday Friendship Group. She was also active at the WI in nearby Brimstage, helping to support and organise their functions as a committee member. It's safe to say that those who knew her would describe Alice as a generous soul who was quick to donate both time and money to charity. Her detached property was flanked by neighbours, Phyllis Kellett on one side and Geoffrey Howitt on the other. Both were fond of Alice and each had a spare key to her property to gain access in case of emergency. Between the two of them, they would do their best to ensure that Alice was looked in at least daily. Her daily routine would see Alice visit her local newsagents, which was a short walk away on the busy main road. She'd grab a copy of the Liverpool Echo, which is a local paper, along with a can of Guinness, which she'd enjoy over lunch while she watched the news. I like her style. I know. That's how I'm going to be when I'm older. That's not how I am yet. Yet. Not quite yet. Her afternoons were busier. On Tuesday, the 10th of December, 1996, it was just another normal day for Alice. She and Phyllis had met up, as they did most days, and Alice had revealed to Phyllis that she was looking forward to the WI Christmas meal that was due to take place the following day. After their chat, Alice walked Phyllis home and promised that she'd pop in the next morning, which happened to be Phyllis's birthday. The next day, around midday, when Alice hadn't visited Phyllis like she promised the previous day, Phyllis was worried. It was so rare for Alice to let someone down or break a promise that Phyllis feared her friend must have been taken ill. She tried calling on the phone but got no reply and so she made the decision to pop next door to see how her neighbour was. She rang the doorbell and was surprised to get no answer. She strained to listen at the door but couldn't hear any noise, not even the sound of the lunchtime news on the TV, which she knew Phyllis watched religiously. Apprehensively, she chose to use the spare key to let herself in. Quote, I rang the bell, but there was no answer. Alice had two locks on her front door, and when I tried it, I realised it would not open. But I turned the key again, and it opened. End quote. Phyllis braced herself for the worst, fearing that she may find her friend seriously ill or having suffered a fall. She then saw 68-year-old Geoffrey Howard, Alice's other neighbour, in the front garden next door. Phyllis called him over and shared her concerns with him. He listened and quickly agreed with her. It was very unlike Alice to break a promise. He agreed to enter the house with her. The downstairs showed no sign of Alice and there was no response when they called out her name. Alice's bedroom at the front of the property was empty, as was the guest bedroom and bathroom. It was only when they got to the bedroom at the back of the house that the horrible truth was revealed. And I have just remembered what this case is, and you're not going to like it. Oh. Jeff later told the Liverpool Echo, quote, The house was not like she would keep it. It was untidy. We were calling out her name, but there was no reply, so we went upstairs. We found her in the back bedroom, lying on a bed near the door. The grandchildren used to sleep there when they came to stay. She was clearly, obviously dead. I've never seen anything like it in my life. We dashed downstairs and rang 999. I never, ever thought I would ever see anything like that. End quote. Alice was laid on her back on the single bed in the room, naked from the waist down with her hands tied behind her back with a blue paint splattered rope. 
A soaking wet towel had been forced into her mouth, presumably to act as a gag, and there was a piece of cloth wrapped around her neck. The orange woolen sweater that she was wearing had been pushed up, though not removed, and showed lots of blood on her body. She'd been stabbed four times in the chest and back. One stab wound was so horrific, it plunged 11 centimetres into her heart. Bloody hell. Horrifically, the killer had also inserted two kitchen knives into her eyes and left them there. Oh, grim. The shaken pair called the police straight away. They arrived quickly and sealed off the house before taking statements from Geoffrey and Phyllis. Detective Superintendent Jeff Harrison took charge of the operation to try and catch Alice's killer and he assigned over 70 detectives to the case. He told the Liverpool Echo, It was probably sexually motivated. Mrs Rice suffered extremely vicious wounds. The house was not ransacked and there was no forced entry, so the killer probably just knocked on the door. We ask people to be very vigilant. We don't know what we're dealing with. Dealing with a psycho by the sounds of it. Definitely, especially the eyes. I know. Jesus. Harrison deliberately withheld the gruesome details of the crime from the press, partly because it's a way to tell if someone is telling the truth if they ever confess to the crime, because it's knowledge that only the murderer would know. In fact, police gave strict instructions to both Geoffrey and Phyllis not to disclose what they had seen for this reason. He'd also withheld the full details as he didn't want to cause panic and fear amongst the local elderly community, a community who, naturally, were shocked and horrified at a murder having taken place, much less without knowing the horrific details. God, definitely Spittle is like at a retiree village, isn't it? Yeah, any news like that would spread like wildfire, wouldn't it? Mm. Reverend Justin Moat from Alice's local Trinity Church said, quote, Alice Wright was a lady of poise, dignity and elegance. She was a beautiful woman, very gracious. People around here are shocked. It's a quiet, suburban and safe area, which have been clearly been intruded on by evil, end quote. At first, police looked into the idea that the crime may have started as burglary. However, the only items missing that could have been believed to have been of any value to the criminal were a few items of costume jewellery. The search was ordered at the local area to try and locate a discarded murder weapon, whilst forensics combed Alice's home and detectives started looking for suspects. Among those that they wanted to consider first were those with a criminal record of extreme violence, particularly those who had taken some kind of trophy from the scene of crime. The reason for this? During her ordeal, Alice's underwear had not only been removed, but was missing, presumed taken by the killer. Dr Paul Johnson was the home office pathologist who carried out the post-mortem. He felt that the time of death was sometime the previous afternoon, meaning that Alice's body had been left undiscovered for almost a day. The cause of death was officially given as due to blood loss following a stab to the heart. The report went on to say that although Alice showed no signs of rape, her body had been, quote, sexually tortured, unquote, which sounds absolutely horrific. No specific details of these have ever, thankfully, been released. Mm. Well, God, I think with those type of things, well, you just don't want to know, do you? No. It's your mother as well. Grim, isn't it? Details of the murder given to the press included the revelation that Alice had been partly choked with a ligature and that the killer had used a towel to gag her. It was also revealed that the towel had been drenched in water at some stage, with the suggestion being that it had been some kind of water torture. It's not dissimilar to waterboarding, which is a similar method from memory. Mm, I think water, yeah. yeah. It was later revealed that detectives believed the kitchen knives were inserted into her eyes after her death. Now, I'm not comfortable with this description, not just the horrible act itself, but the verb itself inserted the knives 
can't think of an apt description and it's not sitting right as I write this out or as I read it back. So, sorry, but yeah, oh. insert it into her eyes. Oh, grim. No, I just, yeah, <laughs> not good with that type of thing. No. Despite initially having several suspects, as police interviewed them, one by one, they were ruled out. Everyone who had been in the area of Poulton Road on the day of the murder was traced, and again, each were ruled out. Added to the fact that both Phyllis and Geoffrey, either side of Alice's house, hadn't heard anything, and police started to struggle with the case. There had been no sign of forced entry. Had Alice known her killer or let him in, thinking he was an official of some kind? Unlikely, according to those that knew her, Alice was security conscious and wouldn't have let anybody in unless they had ID to prove who they were. Police eventually concluded that the murderer must have been a stranger to Alice, but they were split as to the motive, though. One school of thought was that it was a burglary that had escalated. The property was in a quiet road in an area that was fairly well-to-do, owned and occupied by a single elderly woman. It would have been a perfect target for burglars. The other opinion was that it was a crime of sexual origins, with the theft of the costume jewellery as almost an afterthought. That makes sense to me, especially when you take into account the fact that the underwear was taken too. Yes. Several sets of fingerprints were found on the property, and though the majority were accounted for, including some that turned out to be more than six years old, 18 sets of prints were unknown. God forbid they ever come round our house and take fingerprints, because we've had so many workmen here, and I keep seeing fingerprints on various places that have been dusted and moved and doors and... Yes. And the killer had left very few other clues behind. There were no footprints left behind, no trace of semen or blood from someone other than Alice. In fact, the only thing the forensics had to go on was the blue rope which the killer had used to bind Alice's hands together. The rope was made of polyester and was the most widely used rope available. So no help there. (laughs) It was covered in paint splatter, which detectives felt meant it could have been used in construction, and a sweep of the property didn't reveal any more rope that was similar. A few weeks after the murder, a reconstruction of Alice's last movements was filmed for Crime Watch UK, which for listeners of the uh, True Crime Enthusiast podcast, you'll know that it's Paul's favourite programme. I used to love Crime Watch. Although, did you just get the shit out of me? Oh, me too. I remember I... watching it as a kid when I was like nine or ten. It used to yeah. terrify me. And it was on just before bedtime. I know. So you'd watch it and they'd be like, murderers on the loose, rapists yeah. everywhere. Oh, going to bed now. Fuck. Yeah. And what was the, uh, the end catchphrase? Don't have nightmares. Yeah, stay safe. Don't have nightmares. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, too late. <laughs> It was featured on TV on Tuesday the 11th of February 1997 on BBC One and after showing the reconstruction, detectives pleaded for information from anybody that may have been able to provide some leads. Details of the exact gruesome nature of the crime were withheld from viewers but the main details, along with a list of items stolen, were discussed on the show. There was also the revelation of a £5,000 reward for the capture of the killer by Crime Stoppers. Unfortunately, the show, which boasted a high success rate in catching criminals for the crimes it featured, was unsuccessful this time, with few new leads coming forward. Alice's funeral was held on Thursday the 3rd of April that year at the church she attended weekly and she was buried in Anglesey. By July 1997, with the lack of success on the case, the number of officers working on the crime had been reduced down to 18. That's still an awful lot of of people working on it, isn't it? 18? It is. At the same time, the acting headquarters for the investigation was moved from Wallasey to the much smaller Bebbington sub-police station. Which is our local station. It is, and it's mostly on band now. Yep. Yeah, never fact, anyone near it. Even then, I think it was partially, only partially manned. Eventually, the case wound down. With only so much work that can be done on an investigation that is seemingly going nowhere, Alice's murder turned to a cold case. In other words, it wouldn't be actively worked, but neither would it be closed. 
It would receive periodic reviews and, of course, any new leads would cause the case to be fully reopened. In May 1998, 18 months after Alice's murder, Detective Sergeant Frank Anderson received a tip-off from an informant, 58-year-old Kevin Morrison. Morrison was a petty criminal who had been a police informer for four years. He'd given Anderson information several times in the past which had led to arrests, so Anderson was keen to listen when Morrison said he had knowledge of a murder on the Wirral. Before imparting any information, though, Morrison wanted payment. It's not uncommon for informers to receive payment for successful tip-offs, and Morrison knew that Crime Stoppers were offering a £5,000 reward. He also wanted protection, as well as requesting to be given housing, so he could move from the caravan he was living at the time with his daughter in Nantwich. We don't know if Morrison was ever promised anything that he asked for, but I hope for his sake that he was, seeing as he's now been fully named as a police informant. Yes. Jesus. I also wasn't sure how common police informants were or if they got paid, but I found a quote from a former and anonymous detective who told the BBC the following about police informers. Quote, they are usually paid on results. The better the information, the better the result. Poor, weak and misleading information leads to confused or poor result and a lower payment. Having sources on the inside of a job is also a very risky business for the police at court, but also for the source themselves. End quote. I can only imagine. Brackets, no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) Whatever Morrison was promised, it was enough to get him talking. And he promised DS Anderson that he was in for a shock. Acknowledging that what he was about to reveal was a big risk, he said of the murderer, quote, it can only be me or somebody who has told me, end quote. What the fuck? On the afternoon of the murder, Morrison told DS Anderson that he had been called by a friend of his, 50-year-old Keith Darlington, who asked if they could meet up that afternoon. Morrison agreed, and when the two met, claims that Darlington asked if Morrison would look after a bag full of stolen goods. Saying that he would, Darlington handed over the bag. Peering inside, Morrison saw the hall. A few items of jewellery, bank statements, a bus pass and credit cards, all in the name of Alice Rye. There was also a knife, broken into three and covered in bloodstains. Two days later, which was the day that Alice's murder was in the newspaper, Morrison put two and two together. He called Darlington and asked to meet him again. And on the Saturday, the pair met up at the Ellesmere Port Boat Museum car park. Once there, he took Darlington to task about the stolen goods he'd been asked to look after. Darlington confessed he had stolen them from Alice Rye and that he had murdered her. Morrison revealed that Darlington had said to him, quote, I killed her because she wouldn't tell me what I wanted to know. She wouldn't give me her PIN number, end quote. He also revealed how he had chosen his victim, detailing how he'd specifically been looking for a woman living alone. He'd gone to the library and looked at the electoral roll where he'd found a missus listed at an address without a mister, Mrs Alice Rye. He'd gone to the property and knocked on the door where he said that Alice had let him in. He'd then produced a knife and forced her upstairs to the bedroom at the back of the house. After Alice refused to reveal her pin number, he told Morrison that he tortured her before murdering her. But the detail that caught DS Anderson's ear was the information that hadn't been revealed to the press. Morrison told him how Darlington had revealed he'd ultimately killed Alice because she was able to identify him. He also told of the gruesome finale, that he had stabbed Alice's eyes. The reason? Because, quote, I watch Cracker. They're going to be doing a psychological profile of this guy. They won't be looking for me, they'll be looking for a nut, end quote. Was Cracker shown worldwide? 
I'm sure it must have been. I'm not sure. If not, it was a popular detective series in the UK in the 1990s starring Robbie Coltrane, aka Harriet from Harry Potter. Yeah, it was a great series to be fair. I remember watching it. So you said you wanted to watch it again. Well, I think we found it. I'm sure it's on one of the uh, subscription channels now. Yeah, I would quite like to watch it again. So why hadn't Morrison come forward before? Simply due to fear. He'd thrown the jewellery, the paperwork and the cards away and buried the knife in the ground behind his caravan. And it baffles me why the murderer wouldn't want to keep hold of everything or discard the evidence himself. Why would you give it to someone else? I wouldn't trust anyone. If I was going to commit a murder, I would not tell anyone. No. And why would you leave a bloody murder piece in there? You'd either wash it off or, you know... Can you imagine any of your friends coming up to you and going, can you look after this for me? Ignore the knife that's broken in three pieces. Covered in blood. Covered in blood. Mm. It took 18 months for him to build up the courage to come forward. Given the intimate knowledge of the crime and the fact that the details given were only known to the police and the murderer, Morrison's statement had been correct. He either had to be the murderer or he had to know him. The police weren't taking any chances and chose to arrest both men. No fucking about. That's sensible. On the 5th and 6th of June, Darlington was arrested at home in Ellesmere Port, while Morrison was arrested at his caravan in Nantwich. Both men were taken to Bevington Police Station for questioning. Darlington agreed that he knew Morrison, although he insisted that he was an acquaintance rather than a friend, and he emphatically denied the story that Morrison had told them about murdering Alice. The two men had lived in the same street in Ellesmere Port in the 1980s, and even had allotments in the same place. They were on nodding terms, but no more. Darlington denied either meeting that Morrison had divulged and also denied handing over a package. So far, as you'd expect. When police asked him for his movements on the day of the killing, Darlington provided them with a pretty watertight alibi. Being unemployed at the time, he was receiving unemployment benefit, and in order to get this, he had to physically go to the DSS office in Ellesmere Pool to sign on and get his money. This took place every Tuesday afternoon, including the Tuesday afternoon that Alice was murdered. The police checked with the DSS, who confirmed that he was telling the truth. Their records showed that he had been there between 3pm and 3.30pm that day, the exact time that Alice had been murdered. Police also checked his criminal record. They struggled. Darlington didn't have a criminal record, and there was no history of violence found. He was released on police bail. They then turned their attention to Morrison. Well, I would do at that point, wouldn't you? Fucking right. Morrison continued to insist that his version of events was true, Everything he knew about the murder had come from what he'd read in the paper and what he had been told by Darlington. As he was being interviewed, a warrant was obtained and a search of his caravan was made. The broken knife was quickly found buried where Morrison had said it would be, and it was sent to forensics. As a result of the discovery of the knife, Morrison was charged on Tuesday the 9th of June 1998 with disposing of stolen goods and also with attempting to pervert the course of justice by disposing of the knife in an attempt to prevent the apprehension of the murderer. They also uncovered evidence that Morrison had spent long periods in a local library, no doubt choosing his victim after studying the electoral roll. Exactly like he said Darlington had done. No forensic evidence could be found linking him to the murder, but what the police did have was enough to be able to hold Morrison for longer while they investigated further. The search of the caravan had uncovered documents belonging to Morrison, which gave details of a lock-up garage that he had in Worcester Walk in Ellesmere Pool. Police obtained another warrant, and when they searched the garage, they found a myriad of items, including a shopping trolley, which had 14 pairs of women's knickers in it, including one pair that was distinctly old-fashioned. I do not understand the fetish with people's knickers. I don't. A forensic test revealed that traces of Morrison's DNA were found on almost all of the underwear, 
In his defence, Morrison claimed that he bought them for his daughter at a flea market, but had often ended up wearing them himself as he was so poor. Second-hand underwear? You can get second-hand underwear, but... I if you that were... was a specialist thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you can get it, but to be honest, is there, were, there, were there no second-hand men's pants? So it's the 1990s, it's not like you couldn't have gone down to some cheapy place and bought some... No. Oh. Police knew that Alice's underwear had been taken from the scene of the murder. They picked the old-fashioned underwear and sent it for more testing. When Morrison was told of this, he said to police, quote, Well then, if you think they've been worn, there'll be DNA on them, and you can match them to Alice Ryan, I'm in big trouble, end quote. Sounded very confident, isn't he? I think it's really unfair that they picked up the old-fashioned underwear as being Alice's. Just because she's elderly doesn't mean she doesn't like nice underwear. Oh, isn't it a fact? As soon as you hit 43, you just go granny pants, that's it. I don't know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) The police, never wanting to disappoint, set about more in-depth testing for DNA on the underwear. Calling in Cellmark Forensics, who had historic results with Operation Izzard, with two cases originally from the late 1970s and early 80s, and who would go on to have success in the Damiola Taylor case, the company was able to retest supplies and samples, and they obtained a better result. They found two sets of DNA on the underwear, Morrison's and, well, the official quote was that it was a one in 69 million chance that the other DNA was that of anybody but Alice Rye. On the 18th of August 1998 in Birkenhead Magistrates Court, Morrison was charged with murder. His trial started at Liverpool Crown Court on Monday the 5th of July 1999. Robert Fordham QC prosecuting told the court, quote, It is a case of a great wickedness because this defendant has sought quite boldly to blame another for her death and it is a case of great unusualness because had it not been for initiative taken by this defendant, it is unlikely they would ever have been brought to justice. End quote. In summary, and to translate, you done fucked up, son. Yeah, I can't believe that. If if he'd never come forwards and tried to blame it on on somebody else on Darlington, then no one would have known. Ridiculous. Details of the murder were revealed in court, including mention of how Alice's underwear had been taken, inferring that the killer kept them as a trophy. Fordham also told the jury how the killer had stuck knives in the eyes of the victim, saying, quote, If there is any consolation, it is that the depraved act was almost certainly committed after death. End quote. The jury were also told how Morrison had voluntarily spoken to the police in May 1998, giving them details of how his friend, Keith Darlington, had confessed to the murder. In court, Darlington told the court how Morrison's accusations were, quote, a pack of lies, end quote. He was not beating around the bush there, was he? No, no, short and sweet. <laughs> Robert Fordham went on to describe Morrison as a lunatic, a sexual oddity, a, quote, circuit not properly wired, end quote. Telling the jury how Morrison had found his victim while searching the electoral roll at the library and how he'd told police that's what Darlington had done, he said that the jury, quote, might think Darlington more familiar with a sausage roll than the electoral roll, end quote. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Fuck me, that is brutal, especially as it's an innocent bloke giving evidence. <laughs> so, you're here giving evidence, you've been proven innocent, but I'm not going to diss your intelligence. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> he also suggested that Darlington would have been un- unable to stalk the house. As part of his defence, Morrison argued that he would have found it difficult to hold a knife well enough to stab the victim, as he'd had part of his finger on his right hand amputated in 1996. The jury took three hours to reach their verdict. Guilty. And just as an aside, there's a local firm of solicitors on Merseyside that proudly states how one of their solicitors has dealt with 
many high-profile cases. And for some bizarre reading, they include this case where they represented Kevin Morrison. Newsflash, he was found guilty. I wouldn't be boasting about it. Yeah, I represented this this person in this famous case and we lost. (laughs) Judge Mr Justice Douglas Brown, which is not a very judge-like name, Your Honour, told the 60-year-old divorced father of three, quote, the jury had convicted you of a wicked murder. It was obviously planned and carried out in a cruel and ruthless manner. You are a truly evil man and you were also, in my view, on the evidence given, very dangerous, end quote. He went on to say, quote, what made you submit yourself to the scrutiny of the police may never be known for certain, but you obviously wanted a substantial reward and took the chance that after 18 months, nothing would connect you with this murder. You then callously accused an innocent man, causing him great distress, and those allegations were, of course, totally false. That they were false was demonstrated by the great skill of the Forensic Science Service, both government and private, to whose application and perseverance the public owes a considerable debt. Your gamble failed because of the forensic science evidence and the diligent work of the investigating police officers. The sentence upon you is one of life imprisonment. End quote. Morrison was ordered to serve at least 18 years. He showed no emotion in the crowded courtroom where the verdict was returned, nor where the sentence was passed. Other charges were also laid on file against Morrison, but I can't say if these were revealed to the court and if they were, whether it was before or after the verdict. These charges included an alleged rape, indecent assault and serious sexual offences by Morrison against three girls, the youngest of whom was just six years old, spanning from 1968 to 1986. He had denied these charges. But in his lockup, he had all of those um, nickers, didn't it? So it's like, were they all trophies? Yeah, grim. Similarly, seven charges alleging theft, handling stolen goods, obtaining property by deception and burglary against Morrison between January 1995 and May 1998 were laid on file. Morrison also denied those offences. After the verdict, Detective Superintendent Dave Smith, the man who led the investigation, said, quote, The victim's family have been absolutely superb. They have offered support and encouragement throughout this investigation. The result is a testimony to the family, the people of the Wirral and the Merseyside Police working together to ensure the safety of the community. End quote. In 2011, Morrison appealed for his sentence to be cut. His request, which could have seen him freed the following year, was thrown out by Mrs Justice Thurwell. She revealed that had she been sentencing now, the minimum term would have been 20 years, but as she was unable to increase his punishment, it would stay at 18 years. Kevin Morrison is now believed to be a free man, having served his sentence in full. It's, uh, I don't know, I struggle with this so much because I just think, you know, those poor children as well. Yeah. And that's the case of the murder of Alice Rye. My two favourite things from this case. Firstly, the poor innocent bastard who the jury was told was more familiar with the sausage roll than the electoral roll, (laughs) which is brutal. And secondly, as we've discussed already, the fact that had Morrison kept his mouth shut and not tried to stitch up someone else innocent, uh, it would have he'd never been caught. No. I just, just don't understand. I don't understand. Was it just the money? Was that just the only motivation? Was he was hoping to get his hands on that five grand reward? Well, that's that it. it. But even then, it wasn't like he was blaming someone who was nearby who had handled it or anything. He was blaming someone purely innocent who was just going to turn around and go, no, and you've got no evidence. It wasn't going to go anywhere. No, it is it, absolutely bonkers. So, yeah, for the, for the risk of, well, for the hope of getting £5,000, he ended up spending 18 years in jail. Yeah. Works out at what? About £250 a year. 
But all your meals paid for. Well, there is Three that. bed and breakfast. Yeah, and they have a library. <laughs> Hold on, let's go out and some crimes. They have a library. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the electoral roll, though. <laughs> horrible case. It is horrible. Um, it's, and especially to someone who was so elderly and innocent. Yeah. And the way he, he left it. Well, I think it says a lot as well, though, that, you know, he'd said that the other person had inserted the knives into her eyes in order to appear crazy, like on Cracker. But mm. really, when the police actually went to his lock-up and delved into it, he really was a nut. Yeah. I don't know if you could say crazy, but certainly some kind of mental imbalance there, wasn't it? Mm. Oh, mind you, killing someone and stabbing stuff in their eyes, I suppose that is a Michael Crazy person, no matter what. Yeah, it's not the sort of thing that I would think about doing. No. No, no, when I'm murdering people, I never think to stick knives in their eyes. I'm too squeamish. Yeah. Um, that's it for this case. Hopefully we can get this edited, because it does need an edit, unfortunately. I just thought, from an interesting point of view of me saying that I'm squeamish, yeah. although I am squeamish, I am taking my daughter to see a um, live dissection thing, aren't I? A you live, are. Um, Is it body now. works? It's like that. It's like a, it's a fake body. But they're doing a live autopsy. Promise. Well, she wants to go to medicine. Yes, but she's only five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should say she's coming up for. No, she is 17. She's 17. Just turned 17. 17, yeah. Oh, little baby girl. So old. Yeah. Um, and she's proper weird. She does like things like dissections and biology and group. Right. What are your thoughts on the case? Let us know. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com. Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. To search for Sublime True Crime. And if you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review as it helps us reach more people. Serious inverted comments. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, <laughs> let us know. If you want to leave us a review, you can do it at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. If we remember. Uh, thank you to Jade for recommending this case to us, uh, especially as it's a local case. It was as fun as it can be looking into it. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm Danny UK. And I'm Nearly Erica. If you can think of any cases you'd like us to cover, let us know. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>